Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today is the day after Veterans Day. And did you hug a veteran yesterday? Well, if you didn't, you still have time. The month of November is um, National Veterans and Military Families Month. So if you didn't hug a veteran yesterday or tell him thank you or do something nice for a veteran, then you still have the whole rest of the month to do it. So I suggest that you get busy. And today, my guest is a veteran. Um, in fact, he, is, he has spent time as a veteran, well, as a, in the military, uh, in Somalia and Vietnam. I mean, just think about that. Um, what personal sacrifice that is. And he has written a book called Appalachian Free Spirit, A Recovery Journey. And uh, his name is Duke Talbot. And welcome to the show, Duke. Thank you. Now, you um, we're talking to you now in West Virginia. And that is where you were born and raised? Yes. And before you were in the military, um, you were a Peace Corps volunteer. Is that right? Yeah, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Somalia. Huh. So how old were you then? I was 21. I did. I went into Peace Corps right after graduation from West Virginia University in 1964. That summer, went to training at uh, Eastern Michigan University and went to Somalia in late August. Stayed there for a couple years as a volunteer. Wow. And um, what had been your plans? Like, what did you major in? What were you planning on doing for a career after you got out of college? Well, I really thought after I went to B school, I'd probably go to law school. But I never did. Uh, Instead, I uh, I was in the peak of Vietnam War. And uh, I, I was still eligible for the draft. And so I volunteered. And uh, ended up going to Vietnam. I was in infantry, but I actually got pulled off to work at the adjutant's office of brigade headquarters. So I had an opportunity to experience a lot of different aspects of the war. And uh, I, it was pretty pretty rough because we were. Our, our LZ, where I was stationed, was real close, only about four kilometers from Ho Chi Minh's birthplace. And it was one of the LZs that had never been overrun. So the, you know, the Viet Cong were hammered at all the time because they 
thought that you know it would be appropriate to clear out Ho Chi Minh's birthplace. Uh-huh. They never did overrun us, at least not while I was there. They sure tried. Uh huh. Well, let's start. Let, let's go back up a little bit. Um, I want okay. to start to to before you went into the Peace Corps. Um, yeah. Because what I was asking earlier was, um, I mean, when you were going to college, you must have had something in mind to do with your life, like some career um, besides the Peace Corps. And so, well, yes, um, I did. Like, I'd like you, to say I've had thought about going to law school. Yeah, but, but so I what, never did. Uh, okay, that's what I'm trying. To, that's what I'm trying to get at. What made you like because because you know when people, I mean, generally when people go to college, they have some plan, or along the way, they find a plan for what they want to do as a career. And so, what I'm wondering right. is. Um, how, what made you interrupt those plans um, to join the Peace Corps? Like, what was it that... Um, well, I, uh, when I first it? heard about when President Kennedy first announced the Peace Corps, I latched onto that, and I thought, wow, what an exciting opportunity to do something. You know, not only to see the world, but also, you know, to make a, some kind of positive contribution somewhere. And uh, mm-hmm. so I thought, well, that'd be a great thing to do. Uh, because I wasn't really t- too sure what I wanted to do. I, I would, uh, had been a lawyer in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really firmly committed to it. And mm-hmm. so I joined the Peace Corps uh, because I thought, wow, this is a chance to do some good and to have some, you know, see some exciting parts of the world. Uh-huh. Well, actually, and ha- Go ahead. Yeah, actually, I, I kind of fell in love with Africa. And uh, so when I came back from the Peace Corps, I went to graduate school for one semester to work on my master's in history. But that's when the draft lady started looking at me and said, hey, we're going to get you, so that's when I volunteered and uh, went and ended up in Vietnam. Uh-huh. And what was it like um, in Somalia? What were you doing in Somalia? What kind of the first year I was there, I was at Berbera, Berbera Intermediate School for Boys, and I taught English and history. Uh, huh. The second year I was there, the Peace Corps administration and the Somali government had uh, decided to start a, uh, a trial experimental project to build additions to schoolrooms uh, because they had a lot of one-room schools out in rural areas. And uh, they looked for people to volunteer. And I thought, well, that would be really interesting to get out in rural areas and see what's going on. So I volunteered for it. And, wow, it was quite an experience, believe me. It was, uh, it, it was really some genuine hardship because these little villages we worked in, I'd probably be 
Oh, as much as 75 or 100 miles of dirt road from the nearest fellow American. Mm. And uh, most of them didn't have even have water, or if they did, just had minimal amounts of water because there's so much of that area in northern Somalia where this took place, right over on the Ethiopian border, is pretty much desert. And uh, it was some rough times, but it was also a great time to learn and to really be involved in a totally alien environment. And I learned a lot and what from was it. your what, what was your contribution to it? What were you supposed to be doing what, in these What villages? we did, the program entailed, uh, it was, they, were, they were joint projects in which the local community had to come up with uh, the labor and sand and the water, which was a very important contribution when you're in the desert, and the USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development, would provide imported materials like the cement and uh, any kind of hardware that was required uh, that sort of thing, wood and lumber. And uh, so our role was to negotiate with the village elders and to get them to agree, because, of course, here are a bunch of foreigners coming in wanting to do something in your community. They, of course, want to know about it, which is, you know, totally yeah. reasonable. And so yeah. uh, we would negotiate uh, usually... We had the district commissioner as an interpreter for us because I wasn't fluent enough in Somali to be able to, you know, conduct the negotiations using their language. And, of course, mm-hmm. none of them spoke English either. So once we negotiated with them and they, everybody reached agreement on it, um, we brought the materials in and uh, stayed with the project. Usually it took about a month or six weeks to build a school. And so, oh, you were building schools, I see. School additions, yeah. They, were t- they had one, a lot of one-room schools, and they wanted to add another classroom to them to more or less double their capacity. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's all very interesting. Um, it was, it so really you, was. You, so, okay, and so then you came back, and as, as you were saying, you started to go to graduate school, but then the draft was coming, and you volunteered to, uh, now, uh, when, when you volunteered, did you get any, I mean, you, you, did you get any choice of, <laughs> I mean, I know it was Vietnam yeah. or Vietnam, but did you, um, did you, I don't know, get, what did you, what did you yeah, go in as? Yeah, that was one reason I, I volunteered instead of waiting to be drafted because I could have some input into what I did. And yeah. uh, so what we negotiated with the recruiters was that uh, I would come in, go to basic and AIT, and then go to Officers Candidate School and to be an officer in the Transportation Corps. You know, I like to run around mm-hmm. the earth a lot, and I figured Transportation Corps was a good way to do it. But 
Okay, yeah. Once, once we got into OCS, the Army decided they were no longer going to keep those commitments, uh, you know, to go into the different other branches besides infantry. Mm-hmm. They said everybody was going mm-hmm. to go infantry and be a platoon sergeant in Vietnam. Well, the way it was set up, if you went in as an officer, you had to spend two more full additional years in the military. But if you didn't go in as an officer, if you just dropped out of OCS and went, you know, as a, basically as a grunt, uh, you'd only have, at the end of your tour in Vietnam, you'd be discharged. And I thought, well, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stay around for an extra year in the military just so I can be an officer. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't usually quit stuff, but I thought, well, this is something I really do need to quit. And there are a lot of other guys besides me doing the same thing, quite frankly, you know, where they were supposed to be in some other uh, MOS rather than infantry, but the Army decided not to honor their commitments that they'd made through the recruiters. And so a lot of us mm-hmm. left OCS, and I was one of them. It's probably one of the smartest things I ever did in my life, even though I kind of regretted regretted it because I don't like to quit stuff. Uh-huh. So how long were you in Vietnam? A year. That was standard. That was a standard time was a year. Uh, most people, most people who went to Nam, unless they opted to stay longer for some reason, which a few GIs did, uh, most people came home after that first year. So you were um, you were on the front lines, is what you were starting to say before. Is, is that right? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you came home, because now your book is all about how um, your PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, wasn't diagnosed and how you were basically self-medicating with alcohol and drugs when you came home. So, right. um, so what? So what happened in, what were some of the things that you felt were the most or that you realized afterwards were the most uh, traumatic while you were in Vietnam that did cause the PTSD? Uh, actually, I'd like to go back a little bit to Somalia to start sure. that discussion because in Somalia, we, we were on the edges of, of war at different times. And uh, in Yemen, which is where... I, I, I had first encountered war because I was over there for a, doing something with the Peace Corps and uh, ended up in a firefight between the British and the uh, Flossy rebels. Oh. Uh, and also in Ethiopia as well, there were some skirmishes and encounters when I was on leave from the Peace Corps, we got a a uh, a leave at six weeks leave time. Well, on part of my six weeks, I went to Djibouti, and 
been up to Ethiopia to Addis Ababa. And uh, I took the train, the Franco-Ethiopian Railroad, and it was guarded by French foreign legionnaires because that was at the time a French colony. And it got attacked by uh, bandits. And uh, they... I mean, it's like something out of a Wild West show, just to tell you the truth. (laughs) They they attacked the train on horseback, shooting at it, just like something you'd see in an old Western movie. Yeah, And uh, they, uh, of course, French Foreign Legion uh, soldiers who were there forced us to lie down on the ground. I was in the back of the caboose where they attacked, which is where they were. Uh, and, uh, you know, they shot it up. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, but there's all kinds of bullet holes in the side of the railroad car. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, that was, a, that was a pretty harrowing experience, too. But I don't think, had just what happened in the Peace Corps and, and Somalia and that part of the world, uh, then all the exposure I'd had, I think I would have just, uh, I, I could have outgrown that, I think, without any problem. But then turning around and heading so soon to Vietnam, uh, Vietnam was, uh, it was, it was a pretty rough experience, uh, both physically and emotionally. Um, I got pulled off, as I said, to work in the adjutant's office, and that was uh, that was done. I think the re- I mean, the, I was pulled off just temporarily to do something they wanted done, and I did it well, and they saw I could operate, you know, easily in a foreign environment and in a war zone because I, you know we'd had all kinds of experience. You know, with third world countries in Somalia, and yeah. uh, and also we'd been thoroughly trained in culture shock, which no GIs you know, ever had any training Duke, in. And that's one reason why. Yes, wait, uh, wait, wait, Duke. I want. I need to stop yeah. you now because we need to take a break, and I don't want this to. Um, this is important stuff. What you're saying because um, because not only did your experiences in Somalia, some of which were very harrowing and scary and traumatic and all that, not only did that sort of um, uh, make you more vulnerable in a way, you know, um, primed to be um, affected, affected even more, affected even more by what happened in Vietnam, but what you're just trying to say, starting to say, was about how, like, you were a very unusual recruit because most recruits did not have the experience that you had from Somalia in terms of what you were used to and capable of and all of that. So let's, let's take a break now, and when we come okay. back, we will start at this point again and uh, how your you know, previous training or experiences uh, made the um, Army you know, decide <laughs> to give you special duties. So, um, so we'll yeah. take a break now. My guest is Duke Talbot. His book is called Appalachian Free Spirit, A Recovery Journey. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
to the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get right back to my guest, Duke Talbot. He is the author of a new book called Appalachian Free Spirit, A Recovery Journey. And um, I was kind of trying to get a sneak peek on, uh, on where this journey, I'm, I'm going to give you, give you the end, um, this spoiler alert, um, that we're going to go through, of course, his coming back from Vietnam and his dealing with PTSD and alcohol and drug abuse. But just so you know where we're going, um, he ultimately, when he got himself clean, or I, I don't know about got himself, but when he, when he went through what he went through to get clean, um, he became a college professor and, and administrator and then was elected to city council and then mayor. So this is a very exciting story. So we left you, however in Vietnam, <laughs> where the Army realized that you had more uh, talents than the average recruit or average, uh, well, yeah, recruit, volunteer, um, and because you had spent years in Somalia under very, very difficult circumstances. So they put you where? Well, they I was, had you do I what? Well, I got pulled off to work at a brigade headquarters just Temporarily, I was only supposed to have been for a, a week or two, but they saw I didn't have any trouble, trouble functioning with what they wanted done. It didn't bother me, for example, to go down into the village of Duck Fo where the LZ was located and do whatever you know, needed to be done. Uh, and so uh, I, I basically became a troubleshooter for the adjutants. 
when he wanted to keep something kind of low-key without sending an officer in, he sent me. And uh, uh-huh. I had I had all kinds of of, an ex, of experiences as a result of that. And, uh, you know, because I, I could operate. I didn't, didn't bother me. For some reason, I, you know, I mean, the, the cultural part of it didn't bother me at all. You have to remember, most of the GIs went over there were only like 19 or 20 years old. I was 25, a college graduate, and had two years of experience in the Peace Corps. So, you know, I, I, I could handle a lot of stuff that you know, other guys couldn't. And mm-hmm. uh, the result was, you know, just some very unique experiences. I was always uh, in some kind of a situation where we were involved in a firefight or incoming rounds or, you know, attacks of some sort. I mean, violence characterized the whole time that I was there. But uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't out humping in the, in, uh, you know, the, the rice paddies and jungles normally. I mean, we would go out in the bush uh, from time to time. But it was just a, a very number of experiences. And, you know, lots of stuff can go wrong in a war zone. I mean, that's probably more goes wrong than goes right. And uh, when I kind of ended up when something didn't wasn't right or whatever, the adjutant kind of said, "Well, you know, find out what it is and fix it." And uh, it was it was a really interesting experience. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also one in a way that uh, my moral values. Uh, were really challenged. And mm-hmm. even though I could perform effectively, morally, I've, it, it wasn't working for me. And, could, you uh, explain I mean, that? Could, could, could you explain that a little more? What, what do you mean? What well, was, I think I was brought what, up what in challenges? a... I was brought up in a Christian home. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was taught the difference between right and wrong, and uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hellfire and brimstone Christianity. It was Christianity of loving, caring, and forgiving God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had trouble dealing with a lot of the stuff that went on in the, in the military as a result of that. Uh I can give you some examples if you like. One thing, the first thing I got called off to work on, that the very first thing that they put me on was a mess that they had in their courts and boards section where court martials were carried out. And uh, the the adjutant wanted me to you know sort them out and get them processed because he was catching heat from the division headquarters because all these court-martials that hadn't been uh, effectively dealt with. Well, when I got started working on that, what came out was that, you know, the overwhelming majority of them were black guys, not white guys. And Mm -hmm. as well as I remember, in that short period of time I worked at Section, um, 
there were probably over a hundred court martials, and all of them but one were black guys. One of them was a white guy, and oh. uh, it was so corrupt that they the records of the trials were actually being. Uh, typed up and prepared before they had the trial, and sometimes they were even sentencing, cutting orders, sentencing people to uh, LBJ, which has long been jail, before they even had the trial. And I have one uh, one letter that wrote back to my parents that you know, I was telling about this, and I said, "I just don't. This is just morally wrong. How can you do something like this?" Because what was happening yeah. was. The, most of what was the, what was occurring was that the the cases even involved, either involved smoking marijuana or refusing to be point man and and a patrol. Point man is the most dangerous position there is in a patrol. The mo- one most likely to get shot. And mm-hmm. what was happening is that. You know, white guys who were doing, you know, smoking marijuana and refusing to be a point man were getting Article 15s, which is kind of an administrative action, and black guys were getting court-martialed for the same offense. Well, to me, uh-huh. that was morally wrong. And uh, it, it, uh, another example... Um, I was going one time walking on our LZ, and uh, I, I made buck sergeant early on. I was only 13 months in the Army when I made buck sergeant. And buck sergeant's pretty well at liberty to do go anywhere and do anything they want because nobody's going to bother them, really. And I was going from one job to another on the LZ one day, I saw this new building I hadn't seen there before, and I wandered inside of it, and uh, inside of it were a couple GIs, and they had cages, bamboo cages, kind of like what you'd haul a large dog in, transport a large dog in, and uh-huh. they had uh, Vietnamese uh, men in there, they were naked with no clothes. They didn't have enough room. They had to stay in a fetal position because there wasn't enough room to even move to stand up or even sit up for that matter. And you talk about, you know, the moral quandary of looking at something like that. In fact, one of the uh, one of the guys in there said, you probably ought to get out of here because you probably don't want to see what's here, but I'd already seen it. Hmm. And, hmm. Uh, you know, you can go on and on with that kind of thing. So how about man's inhumanity to man? Uh-huh. It's there. Hmm. Well, okay. the result of... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I can give you another example. I think it illustrates uh, uh, sure. the attitude sure. of people, too. And that is that I had to, at one time I had to escort um, a witness uh, to division headquarters. She had been a witness to uh, the murder of a, of a, an Arvin soldier by a GI. And 
uh, I was charged with escorting her to division headquarters for that trial. And she brought with her her two kids who were little kids. They were like toddlers. And her mother sat all four of them and got them on a chopper and took them to division headquarters. Well, I, had, I was also charged with staying in the trial waiting you know, for the duration of the trial while she testified. And uh, she testified, but the defendant came in and testified too. And they called him and the, the uh, prosecution, he, he kept using the words uh, gook and bank. And uh, the prosecutor asked him and said, uh, uh, Private, uh, you keep using the words gook and dink. What do you mean by those terms? And uh, the guy replied, just without any emotion or anything at all, gooks are for you, or gooks are against you, and dinks are for you. Yeah, like these weren't even human beings. Uh huh. And I could go on and on with lots of stuff like that. (laughs) Well, no, I I think, yeah, obviously, obviously it was very traumatic in in a lot of different ways. Were you, were you ever injured physically during your time in Vietnam? I'm sorry, say it again. Were you injured ever physically during your time in Vietnam? No, I was really lucky. I had a number of close calls. One, probably one of the closest was uh, I was about to leave. In fact, I was so short I wasn't even working anymore. And uh, we got in, I was sitting on my bed, bunk, lacing up my boots, and we got an incoming round that uh, was a direct hit on the end of the hooch. And of course, the impact of it knocked me on the ground and uh, the ribbing and um, canvas of the hooch went up in flames on that, on the end where the hit was. And uh, the only thing I got out of it, well, I got some bruises and things like that, which you don't really count for being injured. I got a piece of shrapnel through my watch, which wiped it out. Uh, well, that <laughs> That all counts because, in, the, in terms of developing PTSD, because you were in life-threatening situations and and some like that in particular, where you know you really your life really was um, literally uh, in in very direct danger. So um, right. why don't we? Um, we only have a few minutes before our next break. But why don't you tell us about what it was like coming back and when you first started to notice that you something wasn't quite right psychologically? Well, towards the end of my uh, time in Vietnam, uh, the first sergeant said there were some people wanted to talk to me. And I think this is important to get out because I think it indicates the status of of my emotional state at that time. Uh, and so a couple guys came by, and we went outside and talked to them private, and they were obviously recruiting for something, uh, for, to be, for mercenaries and other support people. And uh, they came back a second time, uh, to interview me again. They knew a heck of a lot about me because 
they'd obviously been talking to somebody because they knew about my background and they knew about what I'd done in the, while I was in Vietnam and they even knew about my experience in Somalia and uh, were trying to recruit me and I just, I didn't, I wasn't sure what, quite what to do about it. I think it was indicative of the insanity that I'd reached that I actually, while I was still in Vietnam, gave serious consideration to take them up on their offer. They wanted, they wanted to get a commitment out of me before I left Vietnam. Uh, fortunately, uh, I said, no, I, I need to go back to West Virginia to my roots and visit family for a while. But, yeah, I left them with the impression that I was very much interested in it. Well, after I came back from Nam, it didn't take me but a few weeks until I was, uh, I'd, I'd become almost rapidly anti-war. And mm-hmm. one of the guys who had been on both the first two interviews while I was in Vietnam called me about, you know, getting a commitment from me to go to work for him. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, and he, 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 in fact, kind of, when he started this conversation, kind of thought that for sure I was going to join him because he was making offers and this kind of thing. And after a while, I stopped him. I said, I want to tell you something. We have absolutely nothing in common. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And uh, he got so so angry with me that he started threatening me. He said, even went so far as to threaten me with my life if I didn't, if I said anything to anybody. And it's like that wasn't enough intimidation coming from him. He said, and we'll even get your parents too. Well, that, I mean, that was a, that was the times that we were living in with Vietnam and all these, 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 extra legal things that were going on in Southeast Asia and that's reflection uh-huh. of what was in our society uh-huh. at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, let's, wait, 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 now we need to take another break and we will continue okay. with this when we come back. This is a good place to stop. Um, again, my guest is Duke Talbot. His book is called Appalachian Free Spirit. A Recovery Journey, and we're going to be getting to his recovery when we come back. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. We're talking today with Duke Talbot. And when we left um, before the break, uh, he was explaining about how these men who had been referred to him or he had been told that these men wanted to talk to him. And as it turned out, I was a little confused exactly what they wanted to do. And as it turns out, um, in, case, in case you were a little confused too, um, these were men who were quasi-military, quasi-attached to the U.S. military. And they were trying to recruit him to be a mercenary um, in Vietnam and other countries and to fight on behalf of the U.S. still, but to actually... Uh, so mercenaries aren't just in war movies or aren't just in, you know, in uh, romantic dramas, but um, uh, that this really does exist or did exist. Now, I want to get into what happened when you, who you were saying when you got back in the States and they called you, kind of realized more like, like you had sort of um, woken up to how uh, you were when you were still in Vietnam, I mean, realizing that you weren't really um, yourself. And so so let's start with that, being here and realizing that, um, I mean, well, getting into drugs and alcohol and at some point realizing that you needed help. So take us there. Okay, Okay, so when I came back... I'd, I had worked briefly for the Census Bureau in West Virginia earlier, and uh, they had said once I got my military commitment over with to give them a call that they'd be interested in you know, me going to work for them. So I, I contacted them, and I went to work in Washington, D.C. at their Suitland Federal Center uh, headquarters, and uh, I, I can remember sitting in my apartment there, because I, I, I couldn't, I, I just, I mean, things weren't right. I couldn't handle it. But I made an almost conscious decision to drink every night because I couldn't stand living with, by myself, with myself. You know, it's one thing, and, and you know, a lot of writers have commented about this, that, you know, daytime is one thing in a war zone, nighttime is something different. And uh, yeah. uh, I couldn't handle nights. Now, when I was in Somalia, mm-hmm. it didn't bother me to sleep outside overnight in the Somali bush, which I did. 
on a few occasions. Right now, I was even afraid to go to bed and go to sleep in my own bed. Uh-huh. You know, that's the extreme that I reached. And uh, so I just ended up drinking until I passed out every evening. I could handle the daytime, so that wasn't a problem, uh, usually. And uh, But at, at nighttime, uh, it was, I couldn't handle it. And I got involved in a lot of anti-war demonstrations and that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, I had been awarded a number of medals in Vietnam. I had a... Uh, CIB and the Army Commendation Medal and a Bronze Star, and uh, you know which were awarded for just service in in Nam. And uh, it, but I I was I was in denial almost. If some I couldn't talk to anybody about Vietnam, I wouldn't talk to them uh, if I could avoid it. And uh, I buried all that stuff. And I had a wall around me that was almost in, impenetrable because I couldn't, I couldn't stand myself. I was full of shame and guilt. And uh, it just, I don't know. I didn't like me for what I'd done. And the result was that I turned to alcohol and other drugs, and, uh, you know, I, like I said, I could still function during the daytime. The result was I started back to graduate school. After, I didn't work at the Census Bureau very long, but I would, decided to go back to graduate school at WVU because I had the GI Bill, and I got married also not long after I was there, and my wife worked, and I had the GI Bill. We... And I went to school. Well, I really felt at home in higher education because people accepted me even though I was a Vietnam veteran. Most people, you know, especially with, uh, you know, after the My Lai Massacre, uh, people really were not very accepting of Vietnam veterans. We were looked down at somehow as less than. And uh, and especially, I was in the unit at the brigade headquarters that uh, where that happened, where the My Lai Massacre happened. And, in fact, Sergeant Rodenauer, who was the uh, sergeant who... who blew it apart when he came back to the United States, actually stopped by my office. He wanted to press charges against Lieutenant Cowley and the people who had carried out that uh, that slaughter at My Lai. And uh, I told him, you know, if, it's, if what you said is true, this is way, way, way bigger than you are. And... Uh, I talked him in. They said he finally he he finally decided not to press charges. I said, if you do, you're going to get wrapped up in them. You're never going to get discharged because the army won't discharge you as long as you have pending legal action. So I, he told me he was from Arizona during our discussion, and I told him to go back. And when he got back to Arizona to talk to uh, Senator Fannin and Senator Goldwater and 
tell them exactly what he had told me. And that's what he did. He went, he went back and, uh, and, and told, uh, you know, the, those two senators and a bunch more about what had happened. And, you know, when, with that, I, you know, it's hard to put into words. It really is. It's hard to, it's hard to describe the kind of venomous attitude one develops towards oneself as a result uh-huh. of all these things coming so, together. So, so was there a point where, um, how did you, um, we're kind of running out of time, how did you um, get diagnosed with, as PTSD and how did you ultimately overcome this? Well, I, I reached a point finally where uh, alcohol and drugs didn't work anymore. I couldn't get drunk mm-hmm. and I couldn't get sober. And, uh, yeah, I was in the depths of hell, to tell you the truth, just be honest and upfront about it. I couldn't stand me, but I couldn't stand not being me. And I finally reached out to God and asked for his help. And I eventually, he eventually led me into the rooms of a 12-step recovery program. And, uh, yeah, you know, and it was from that point that I realized that, you know, hey, it doesn't have to be like this. And uh, slowly but surely, I took the, you know, the 12 steps and, you know, used them as a guide to find a true me. And in the process, I found that there was really a good human being in here that what had happened in the past was in the past. And that, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're only living in the moment right now. And to the extent that I can help others and, and be a good person, it's all that matters. And uh, that's what I did. And I turned to Gnostic literature, uh, particularly the Gospel of Thomas, and also the Buddhist and Taoist literature. Um, and looking at myself. And, you know, over the years of sobriety, it's been, I've never been happier. Today's the dead best day of my life. And, uh, and talking with you is a lot of fun. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, so. well, you know, it's, it's interesting what... Um that it seems like, even though you were on the front lines, it seems like what was the most traumatic wasn't as much the um, the weapons and the physical fear of death, but it was more all these moral challenges that you were talking about that got you to hate yourself and um, be traumatic and get you to turn to the drugs and the alcohol and so on. And, uh, and, and what a comeback... <laughs> to become a college professor and, and administrator and city council member and then mayor, mayor of which, in which city in West Virginia? Elkins, Elkins, West Virginia. Oh, that's where, uh-huh. Well, that's where that's I live now. A, that's where I am right now. Yes, that's um, quite a story, <laughs> you know, sort of going all around the world and coming back to finding yourself. 
and at the place that you were born and raised in Elkins, Virginia, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a, it's a testament to, to, the, to the same person. You know, we started off talking a lot about, like, um, going from college to volunteering for the Peace Corps and so on, and, you know, that in itself um, is a measure of a man. And then for everything that you did after in Vietnam, after Vietnam, and then uh, becoming clean and sober and having these important positions in the community. So it's quite a, quite a whirlwind um, life and journey to, that, that certainly you can be proud of. And um, Duke writes about this in his book, which is called Appalachian Free Spirit. A recovery journey. I imagine that a lot of people are uh, very intrigued by all that you have accomplished in your life, both the journey around the world and the journey within yourself. Obviously, lots of challenges that you have uh, met and succeeded in, um, in conquering. So I wish you all the best um, in, in, for the rest of your journey. I actually hope that this book uh, brings you a lot of success because a lot of people, you know, still, at, as of t- today, certainly it's as, I, I presume it's as good for the people coming back, veterans coming back today, as the veterans who were coming back from Vietnam. And people even who aren't veterans but who are facing challenges themselves and perhaps medicating themselves and using um, trying to trying to fix themselves in the wrong, but going about it in the wrong way. So thank you so much, and uh, I thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and what did I say at the beginning of the show? I said if you haven't hugged a veteran um, on Veterans Day, that you need to do that during the month of November. So we, we need more people. Um, we need to appreciate more people uh, like Duke Talbot. So thank you again. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 